and welcome to People Planet Prosperity, a series of podcasts from Ipsos where we invite experts from inside and outside of our business to discuss the environmental, social and governance challenges of the 2020s and to tell us how their work can help the world to successfully adapt to the changes that are going on all around us. In this episode, we'll be taking a closer look at the findings from the recent Ipsos Equalities Index, our new 33 country study. And as well as talking to Ipsos colleagues from around the world, we'll be welcoming a very special guest to help us take a truly global view on the issues around race and ethnicity in particular. So I'm very happy to be joined today by Alistair Burnett, who is the Professor of Social Geography at Newcastle University. Also, uh, he's the author of a fantastic book, which was published last year, I think, called Multiracism, which I was extremely impressed by and very interested by because I believe it to be the only piece of work which looks at these issues in a global context rather than just through the uh, lens of individual countries or or the West or Europe or the New World. So welcome Alistair, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Yes, thanks very much, great to be here. So your book is called Multiracism. Racism itself is a deeply contested term actually here in the English-speaking world, just within the English-speaking world. And I think your book makes it quite clear that there are issues in applying it elsewhere around the world. So how do you define racism? Well, a starting point is that racism is discrimination and inequality that arise from ethnic and, and racial forms of power. But I said that's a starting point and that and that's the key. Um, increasingly, ideas of racism are being uh, adopted and adapted by different groups around the world. So one can hear uh, activists from um, caste groups in India, um, those people at the very bottom of the um, Indian social spectrum, saying they experience racism. Um, one can hear people like activists who are Yazidi or uh, the Rohingya or we, the Uyghur in, in China saying they experience racism. And it's not really um, a case anymore of a bunch of Western uh, experts um, defining racism, imposing their interpretation on the rest of the world. So this is very much a term that is being uh, deployed and employed by people. Um, so it's fast changing. Yeah, I, I think the other book that I've read recently, which uh, very much impressed me on this subject, is Not So Black and White by Keenan Malik. And I, I raised that because although he, he his scope is much narrower than yours, um, he does say that racism, uh, it, well, race is a product of racism and these things are inherently Western ideas. And he probably describes it, if I can paraphrase him, as a junk science. You know, it's it's complete nonsense, really. It doesn't have any foundation in science, but it is a a cultural idea or an economic idea uh, that has its origins here in the West. So do you actually think the term is still useful in a global context? It really is useful because it is being used. Uh, and like I say, the different um, groups around the world are using racism partly because they know it's a term the international community will listen to. Uh, often uh, people who are ignored, who have been oppressed, uh, sometimes for a long time, um, are finding that um, the words and the vocabulary of racism are like powerful tools, weapons to get attention, to get governments to sit up, to get someone to uh, notice um, how they've been treated. So it is st still very much um, uh, a useful term 
And in terms of the roots of racism, definitely there is a really thick root going into Western history, Western colonialism. And my book, Multiracism, makes it clear how um, the West has been responsible for so much um, racism, discrimination around the world. But it also makes it clear that this, this Western route is entangled, and increasingly so, with other roots and cultural traditions of discrimination. You know, the world doesn't just have one story, it has many, and increasingly they are becoming connected. One of the things that came out from our study, the Ipsos Equalities Index, which surprised me when I saw it, probably because I you know, no, no one here is learned as you on this subject, was when Indonesia emerged as the country where the the citizens of that country were most likely to identify ethnic minorities uh, as a group that suffered from unfair or unequal treatment. There's a number of different reasons for that. One of them is about the situation in West Papua, but you also mentioned that uh, the Chinese community living in, in Indonesia also I suffer from discrimination, even though the economic relationship is somewhat different. I mean, maybe could you enlarge on that? Yes. Well, I mean, I don't claim to be an expert in all the countries I cover, but uh, I do claim to have tried to engage with the work that's coming out of those countries. And it's very clear that uh, Indonesia is a highly complex society. I, I believe it's got, you know, 1,300 uh, ethnic groups um, and the um, largest ethnic group, uh, the Javanese, are in fact a minority. They're about 40%. So with that many um, ethnic minority groups, you'd expect people in Indonesia to be highly conscious of um, my, minoritization or discriminization or whatever we want to call it. So each of the islands in Indonesia, and there are thousands, um, will have multiple ethnic groups on it. Colonisation has not stopped around the world. It's often been, as it were, adopted and adapted by new post-colonial countries, and that's very true of Indonesia. And yes, the point about uh, discrimination not just being about um, oppression of the poor um, is very important, especially if we try and understand the situation of Chinese heritage groups in um, Southeast Asia. In Indonesia, in Malaysia and elsewhere, they are often associated Chinese heritage groups with um, economic uh, power, but they are also often politically excluded and sometimes bear the brunt of, um, of violence. That was another thing that surprised me actually when I was examining the findings in the survey was, you know, I'm embarrassed to admit how ignorant I was of this, because like a lot of people in the West, you know, I imagined what are the most ethnically diverse countries in the world, you know, typically I thought, well, it must be Britain and the United States, because there's people from all over the world live in those places of all sorts of different backgrounds. But of course, actually, that's not true, is it? Because when we look at objective measures of ethnic diversity, such as ethnic fractionalization, and we find that places like Indonesia and also in East Africa actually have a much greater diversity of ethnic groups and like something you said before about ethnicity being much more defined by language and the, the way these terms can sometimes be conflated and overlap ethnicity and race I mean how do you think we can move this debate into a constructive place and use language that maybe is more easily understood in a global context yeah that's a great challenge uh, it's a great question um, I think we do have to listen and learn from uh, multiple situations uh, rather than assume that we in the West or the Anglosphere have got it all worked out and um, everybody else just has to adapt 
to our categories. And that actually does take us back to the importance of language, which people overlook um, in the UK, uh, USA perhaps even. But it's often language that defines identity around the world and defines uh, ethnic belonging. And that um, diversity, which you note in uh, Africa, much of Africa, is pretty much about language. And uh, the reverse side of that coin is that in the UK, which is pretty mono, actually almost <laughs> extraordinarily monolingual from a, from a global perspective, um, we just don't have that diversity. So yes, from that point of view, the UK is, is not a particularly uh, multicultural environment because we all speak one language. So yeah, opening up, listening and learning and being attentive to the importance of language, I think that will really help. Yes, thank you very much, Alistair, and uh, I look forward to uh, speaking to you next time. Yeah, great. I look forward to that. Thanks, Ainsley. So I'm absolutely overjoyed to be joined by Grace Tong, who is a vice president in our public affairs team in Canada. Grace is also the EDI, that's Equity, Diversity and Inclusion Practice Lead for that country. So she's uh, very well versed in the topics. Welcome to Ipsos Views, Grace. Thank you, Ainsley. It's nice to be here. You're in Canada, and of the 33 countries in our study, Canada has the lowest proportion of people who told us that, compared to all the other problems facing their country, that inequality is an important issue. In fact, I think it was 30% said that versus 52, so more than half people globally said it was an important issue. Here in the UK, there was a prevailing view that Canada is actually a bit of a liberal paradise and welcoming of immigrants, and it's quite an egalitarian country. I mean, how do you read this data? Are our perceptions true or are, is it because there are other concerns crowding this out? So I think um, it's an interesting stat and I don't think it's surprising that we would be less likely to see inequality as an issue relative to other countries in the world. You know, when we look at other countries in the world or compare ourselves to other countries in the world, we do see ourselves as a country that's more egalitarian and our values are encoded. They're, they're in our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And it's in our Canadian Multiculturalism Act, which states that every Canadian receives equal treatment by the government, including people from all ethnic and cultural heritages. And these are the sets of Canadian values that we live by. Another example is that we have the first, one of the first countries to legalize same-sex marriage, right? So we are, uh, we see ourselves as progressive. We see ourselves as egalitarian. So relative to the rest of the world, I think that makes sense. Actually, I did see another piece of data in your um, survey as well. The question is about whether Attempts to promote equality for all groups of people need to go further. And only 35% said yes, it needs to go further, which is among the lowest of all countries. So this data point supports the former one. But however, I think it's important too, because relative to the rest of the world, it's one thing. But if we take it out of the global context and we look at Canadian data only, the concern about poverty and social inequality is actually one of the top three issues in Canada. So it comes um, it comes on the heels of other immediate concerns, which are, I think, concerns for many people in the world around inflation, higher costs of living, higher costs of food and housing, and also about our health care system in crisis. Uh, so we have a shortage of health care workers, shortage of primary care doctors. We have a shortage of mental health services as well. And of course, we have that aging population, which is going to be a pressure on our healthcare system. So there are these other concerns that are very pressing, that are immediate. Inequality is part of the picture, um, but it does come in third, which is still higher than other issues um, that, that we've also asked about. Another interesting data point that I saw in the data was that Canadians think Canada is a place of opportunity. 
Um, and it's similar, it's 45%, and it's similar to Americans at 45%. Uh, and they're more likely to believe that people's chances of success in our country depend mostly on their own merit and effort uh, versus the statement that people's chances of success it depends mostly on factors beyond their control. So social determinants, um, maybe, maybe those. But we know that meritocracy um, is a paradox um, in which bias exists, right? So it's interesting. Um, so we stand for equality. However, we may not we may not fully be aware and recognize inequity and the differences between the two. Um, so I think there's some way to, some ways to go in terms of raising awareness around this. Yes, we are a country that is rooted in equality. However, there is a need for greater recognition of inequities within our society and how to address those. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, and I, I wish we had more time, Grace, but just just calling back to something you said a moment ago about the health system in particular and mental health services and primary care and, and hospitals. I mean, it was interesting to me that in that light that when I look at the data, concern that older people and people with mental health conditions are being treated poorly or unfairly in Canada isn't really out of line with the global average particularly. Uh, but what is out of line is concern about the treatment of ethnic minorities and immigrants uh, is a little bit higher than the, than the global average. Now, in a country that's known for its embrace of immigration and one that has, as you've just described, a very liberal cosmopolitan reputation and brings in you know, large numbers of immigrants every year, that seems a little strange. Do you think it's because it's a more salient issue or do you think there might be something else going on there? It's a salient issue, um, but there is something else going on, I think. Um, so we do have a very aggressive immigration policy. We're expected to bring in 1.5 million immigrants over the next three years. Um, that's the plan. And many of those immigrants are highly educated. So they are mostly economic immigrants. They're mostly um, highly educated because that's what we're screening for because it's an important well, Canada, immigration is important for Canada because we are addressing the old, old population and the low birth rate. Who we bring in is important. However, um, what the key issue is, is that systemic and structural issues are preventing new immigrants from really living fully as they would like to. So there are things around licensing and certification process. It's very slow. People need to redo their degrees or they're waiting you know, a year or more to be relicensed. Uh, for example, my mother was very ill recently and we hired a PSW. She's actually a nurse from the Philippines and an excellent, excellent nurse. But she's working as a PSW, which doesn't need certification, which pays. Um, it pays OK, but not as well as a nurse, I guess. Um, but sorry, just, just for our listeners who, just mm -hmm. sorry, Grace, just for our listeners who don't know the term, what is a PSW? Oh, a PSW is a personal support worker. Okay, thank you. Yeah, so it is a, it's a job um, that is lower paid in the, in the healthcare services sector, but you're caring for elders um, generally. So yes, yeah, so she's waiting, and a number of her colleagues are waiting to be licensed as nurses, and we have a shortage of nurses at the same time. So there are barriers to them getting into the workforce fast, quickly. And, uh, and making a livelihood for themselves. There's also this, you know, conundrum, Catch-22, which is you need Canadian experience to be able to work in Canada. Well, if you've just arrived in Canada, you're not going to have Canadian experience. So how are you supposed to get it unless you get a job? So you often hear that. Um, language, language skills as well is often um, seen as a barrier for many, um, although they do have to pass you know, a high level of English in order to get into the country itself. So 
you know, given the immigration patterns that are going to be happening are happening and going to be happening immediately in the next few years, I think it's important to address some of these systemic and structural biases that are existing within our system. Because we stand on, you know, as I mentioned, the Multiculturalism Act, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It seems to be a bit of a paradox in some ways, but perhaps we just need to to move forward and catch up in other ways. And I think you had mentioned both um, immigrants and uh, ethnic minorities. So obviously they're used anonymously sometimes interchangeably because many of our new immigrants are coming from South Asia, India and Pakistan, China, Philippines, Nigeria. So they are ethnic minorities. So on uh, ethnic minorities, people who were born in Canada and people who are Canadian citizens from ethnic minority groups, are there any issues around there that you think would perhaps explain this high level of concern? I believe there still may be some barriers, at least in the work that I see. Um, you know, immigrants, early immigrants who came over, uh, raised their children to have a better life. Many of them were able to achieve the university education and, and were able to move, I guess, up the ladder uh, from where their parents uh, were when they came over. And I think that was the initial expectation that immigrants come over um, and then their children would be succeeding. And I think it's still a myth that that carries on in some ways. But you do see many second generation, um, second generation Canadians who were born here who are very successful. However, there are still biases that exist within, structural biases that exist. So in some of the work that we're doing, we uh, are noticing that um, certain ethnic racial cultural groups will reach mid-level, mid-level senior level management, but they won't get up to the upper levels. There are barriers preventing them from doing so. Either it's, um, you know, lack of sense of belonging, not seeing themselves represented at the higher levels. They are not seeing themselves promoted. Um, they don't see themselves as being perceived as leadership quality, perhaps because there are cultural differences. Even as second generation Canadians, we still carry many of the values that our parents brought us up with. We tend to be more deferential, we tend not to speak out as much about our individual accomplishments, but rather of the collective or the team. So I think those are more subtle and um, often are not recognized because sometimes certain groups are also perceived to be very successful. You know, a lot of them are doctors and lawyers and dentists and so on. Uh, but in the workforce itself, there may be other barriers that that we don't see right off the top of the face of it. Fascinating stuff, Grace. Thank you very much. And thank you for sharing your insights on Canada from the Canadian perspective. And we look forward to talking to you about this again very soon. Okay, thank you. It was a pleasure. Great conversation. I'm very pleased to have with me Mr. Kieran O'Leary, who is the head of our public affairs team in Ireland. Kieran's based in Dublin. I'm very pleased that you could join us today, Kieran. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Great to be here. So welcome to Ipsos Views. Ireland was one of the 33 countries that we featured in the Equalities Index. And amongst the questions that we asked there was, who do you think most experiences unequal or unfair treatment in your country today? Now, the answers given by Irish people were, were quite interesting because they differed from the typical global pattern that we saw in a couple of key respects. And one of them was that 36% of people in Ireland said that immigrants were a group who experienced unfair or unequal treatment in Ireland, which was significantly higher than the global average, and more than half as much again, actually. So why do you think that is? Is that a particularly salient issue in Ireland at the moment? 
It is. It's, it's, it's a hot topic at the moment here, and I suppose like it is in many other uh, countries currently. And I think, I suppose, to give a bit of context, I suppose we have to look backwards. I suppose Ireland has changed quite considerably over the past 30, 40 years. You know, I'm, I'm a, a child of the late 90s, like late 80s, early 90s. And like back when I was younger, you know, 95% of the population were born in Ireland. Uh, you know, there was no reason to come here. There's plenty of reasons to leave here, and Ireland is probably the, one of the biggest suppliers of migrants to other countries. But there was certainly no reason for people to come here. And I guess that sort of changed during the Celtic Tiger years and the early kind of noughties. And you know, the Irish population has undergone a huge change since then. You know, the, the size of the population has gone up. It's up by about what third, up by about a third since the since the 90s. But also, the profile of the population has changed considerably. And you know, there's so many non born here people who weren't born uh, in Ireland. So I think it's down to about, you know, 80% of the population were actually born here. So so it's undergone huge changes over the past while and continues to. And I suppose most recently, obviously, the the the, the, the migrant crisis going on around the world, you know, Ireland has taken in its fair share uh, over the past while. And I think, you know, it, it's come at a time when there's there's big problems in 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 Ireland. You know, we'd have we'd have huge issues around housing, for example, at the moment. It's a huge it's it's a, it's a huge issue uh, in terms of trying to try to house the people uh, who live here. Homelessness is at, is at all times all time highs. There's no kind of you know for lots of people in certain parts of the population there is you know no security in their in their accommodation situation. So I think what's going on, which you've got even issue then going on with, with lots of immigrants coming in and people conflating the two issues of a housing crisis and this these, these high number of, of, of immigrants coming into Ireland and you know it, it is it is a definite it is a definite issue you know and, and lots of people say you know it's testing you know we would certainly see ourselves as a very welcoming country and I think the issues that we're seeing at the moment is really testing that uh, you know and, and some of the challenges that immigrants are, are are experiencing in Ireland there's lots of sort of stories in the news and the media of, of challenges they're facing in the streets um, you know there's lots of issues lots of protests in terms of um, you know be it Ukrainian migrants or migrants from elsewhere coming into uh, Ireland in terms of lots of protests around where they're going to be housed where they're going to stay lots of accommodation like hotels and, and, and that sort of thing being turned over in terms of uh, for, 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 for housing people coming into the country who need emergency accommodation. Um, and, you know, and that, that's putting threat, that's, that's certain communities perhaps feel threatened by that uh, in terms of what's, what's, what's coming into their communities, how it's changing their neighbourhoods, um, you know, for the better or some would say perhaps for the worse as well. Um, you know, but the, 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 the threat that that's, that that's bringing about others. So, you know, so I think in that, you know, that, that it is very much a you know a very salient issue in that respect that you know people can see and hear the stories that the challenges that immigrants are facing in that regard so so i certainly wasn't surprised um what by that number when i saw it i certainly wasn't surprised that it was one of the you know in terms of the groups to be identified as experiencing um you know inequality or discrimination in ireland that that was towards the top uh, of the list like that that certainly didn't come out as any surprise and it wouldn't i don't think to anyone uh, in ireland at all yeah, and it did come as a bit of a surprise to me, I have to say, um, possibly showing my ignorance as a as a Brit, because, of course, we're far too wrapped up in our own debates around this question, which sound very similar to the ones that you're having, actually. But, you know, for any Brits listening to this or anybody interested in British politics, the comparison is quite interesting because 30% was the figure in, in Britain who said that immigrants are getting a raw deal here, which is actually 
considerably lower than the figure now. In fact, Ireland was the country of all the 33 in the entire study was the one with the most likely to pick immigrants out as a group that were having a difficult time. It's a new issue for I think that that's one of the differences. It's not like immigration is not a new issue for Britain. It's not a uh, it's not a new issue for, for, for many countries who've been, you know, attracting in um, um, migrants from other countries around the world and be it from, um, you know, countries that they have a presence in around the world, whatever it might be, you know, Immigration is a very, very new issue for Ireland. You know, there, 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 you know, only 30, 40 years ago, there were no immigrants in Ireland. There were people who accidentally found themselves here, perhaps from Britain or the US, and had, for whatever reason, uh, come living here, or, or, um, or, or people from certain parts of Europe who'd fallen in love with the West of Ireland and decided to, to or rightly fallen in love with the West of Ireland and decided to set up home there. Um, and you know, but in terms of people coming here for economic or other reasons, so this is all this is all new to us, you know. Whereas other countries have been dealing with this issue for, um, you know, uh, hundreds of years, Ireland hasn't, uh, and that's what that's 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 the big difference, I think, uh, compared to lots of other countries. We're joined now by Timotej Oglaja, who is uh, a colleague in Poland. He's a research executive in the public affairs team over there near Warsaw. Timotej, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. There's a couple of interesting findings around Poland which came through in this study. And obviously, you're an expert in the political situation in Poland right now and the social situation. So I was hoping you'd be able to explain, or just help us to understand why, why the data is telling us these things. I mean, the, the first thing that really stood out for me was that when we asked the question, do you think that uh, efforts to promote equality in your country have gone too far or have they not gone far enough? The only country, the all 33 in the study, where there were more people saying that uh, things had gone too far than there were people saying they needed to go further was Poland. So I'm, I'm curious to know, what, what what's your interpretation of that result? Why do you think that is? Well, first of all, the issue is highly politicised in Poland. And I suspect it's politicized everywhere in the world, but uh, in Poland especially, I think right now we have one of the most strict abortion laws in in whole European Union. And uh, for two years now, we have uh, that issue very much politicized in, in public debate. There are many strikes over and over again about that. So I would say that people answering this question would rather express their own political feelings, political views than uh, actually views on this concrete topic. Clearly, though, it is a very salient issue in Poland at the moment, isn't it? These are salient issues. As you say, you have a, a quite a right wing government at the moment that's rolled back some of the progress that's been made on on equal rights for gen on gender and also on think on uh, lesbians, gay men, and and bisexual people, and that those come through when we ask the specific, specifically when we ask Polish people about what kinds of people, what kinds of groups are suffering from unfair and unequal treatment. Or LGB people, they were the most commonly answered group in Poland, which is unusual. Most of the other countries they weren't. I think uh, Brazil was the only other one. So, um, do you think it's a question of salience, or is there something else going on there? Uh, yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a very important question and it's also a politicized issue in Poland, uh, of course. A uh, very important thing is that in Poland we should rather uh, separate these two groups, transgender people and uh, homosexual people, because um, I believe that in Poland the transgender issues are not such um, 
like people do, do not really know uh, what are the issues uh, concerning this particular group. And our report, our Ipsos report on uh, Pride from last month actually shows so shows that really, really well that people um, answers questions about uh, homosexuals more um, uh, like they, they tend to, to to choose more radical options than in case of transgender people. And our own uh, our uh, explanation of this fact would be that people are not really uh, sure what transgender issues are about in Poland, because this is not present in political debate in Poland right now. Maybe it will be in a couple of years, but right now more uh, salient issues are about uh, homosexual uh, homosexuals and uh, women. When we ask about do people from minority ethnic groups suffer from unfair treatment, actually Poland was gave one of the lowest scores. There only 12% of Poles thought that people from minority ethnic groups were discriminated against. Is that because Obviously, there is not a lot of ethnic diversity in Poland. Is it an ethnically homogenous country? Do you think that's the reason, or again, is, it, is there something else going on there? I think that's partially a reason. Polish society is a very homogeneous one. Uh, we have over 90% of Polish people. Uh, it's not that... Um, like in history, we were more diverse society, uh, but for uh, after the Second World War, it became very homogeneous and people are not very used to the term of ethnic minorities because they don't see them in everyday life. You know, I mean, in big cities, we have uh, many immigrants actually in Poland. Poland is becoming more and more immigrant country. Right now we have a lot of people from Ukraine, of course, uh, fleeing the war. And uh, actually before the war, there were also many Ukrainians and Ukrainians in Poland. But I think that the society uh, doesn't view these people as ethnic minorities, rather as immigrants or refugees. And in the in 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 your survey, uh, there were actually different uh, uh, groups, uh, immigrants and ethnic minorities. So uh, yeah, people are not used to uh, the term ethnic minority in the context of uh, Polish society because they view uh, Polish society as a very homogeneous one. Poland is or was a religious, very religious country for a while and a, a very Catholic country. Is the influence of the church still as strong as it was or is that is that playing any part in, in the debate over there and attitudes towards some of these issues that we're talking about? Yes, it plays a, a very big role in Polish society still. Uh, it's not that big as, as it used to be uh, in previous years, but it's still uh, it's still a very important actor. Uh, in Polish uh, politics, in Polish uh, culture. Uh, for example, we are in the middle of a uh, political campaign right now in Poland. Uh, there will be elections in October. And uh, yeah, Catholic Church plays a big role in this campaign. A uh, couple of days ago, uh, there were uh, speeches of uh, r uh, right politicians in uh, some of the most important churches in Poland. So I think that Catholic Church still plays a big role in Polish politics. Uh, it's becoming smaller and smaller because Polish society is becoming more secular over the years. And the change is also uh, dramatic from the perspective of uh, Catholic Church. Yeah, maybe in, in future elections, uh, the role of Catholic Church won't be 
uh, that important, but it still plays a role and uh, it's still used by politicians to gather supporters. So I'm very, very pleased to welcome back Busisiwe Malaba, who has been on Ipsos Views before. Uh, hi, welcome back, Busi. Thank you, thank you. Thanks for having me. I love these. I love doing these. <laughs> we love it too. So Busi is, in case you don't remember, Busi is a senior client officer in Ipsos South Africa. Yes. Uh, in addition to that, which is a day job, she's also very, very active in Ipsos's global campaign to improve the diversity uh, of our research and our work and the makeup of our staff around the world. And she's also been extremely helpful in, in bringing this study together. So thanks again, Boosie, for, for joining sure. us. We're here to talk about South Africa in particular, because I don't know if it pains you to hear it, but of course, South Africa is, of the 33 countries in which we studied, it is the most unequal country uh, measured by the Gini coefficient, which is a measure of socioeconomic equality. But of course, that's also a good proxy for other forms of equality as well, because mm. often these two things do overlap. So the issues around race, racial inequality are very well known internationally yeah. around South Africa. That's not actually where I want to start though, because one thing that really jumped out at me about the, the, the findings from South Africa in this study was on gender. Now, I know that you have some strong views about this. Uh, we have talked about this before. And of course, South Africa, there's been some very notorious uh, cases of, of, of sexual and gender-based violence recently in the news, and it is a persistent problem there. I think that seems to be reflected in the data that we have here. When we asked South Africans who they thought the most, uh, who, who they thought experienced unequal or unfair treatment in South Africa, they were the second most likely in the survey. 42% of South Africans say that women suffer for unequal and unfair treatment, which is 16 percentage points higher than the global average of just 26%. So obviously there's an issue there. But also men, although it's only a small minority, still only 14%. That is the highest of all the 33 countries that we studied. So South Africans are the most likely to believe that men are getting a raw deal. But what this is telling me is that there is an issue with gender relations in South Africa. If everybody sort of feels they're getting a a raw deal. A raw deal. Um, so what, what's, what's your take on that? Um, so I think if we, if I probably would think that that came from a, a younger group more than an older group. Um, and I tell you why. So, so then, then when, when you start thinking about inequality um, from, from people that are slightly younger, um, their issues are very different to those that still have the historical baggage of apartheid, right? Um, historical baggage of, of, of apartheid affects those that, um, you know, are well into their 40s um, and, and, and above, but below that, um, you've got people that are now seeing equalities from a, inequalities from a different perspective. So, for example, if there are men that are saying there are inequalities, the issue here is that the world now is talking about this balance of gender, right? This gender balance. And it might be that in, in a lot of instances in some corporates um, that the voice of the female now gets highlighted, right? The plight of the female gets highlighted. The the um, 
trying to equalize things um, becomes more of um, a topic and how that makes men feel, um, depending on how you're dishing it out, right? How that is making men feel is that men are feeling a little bit more marginalized. Why do you think there seems to be, at least our data is telling us, a particular problem in South Africa at the moment? Because I think the things you just talked about are trends that we see in other parts of the world as well but there's something about South Africa it seems that's making this more of a a salient issue. Remember for us um, both from a racial perspective and a cultural perspective the division between man and woman was clear it was crystal clear cut down right down the middle it was clear you knew exactly where you stood and you knew exactly where a man stood and never the two shall merge or anything like that so um So now that in a way that feels like that is being taken away, that they are that that men are being stripped of that. Right. Um, And like I say, um, if there isn't an understanding of what is actually happening and it's not that they are being stripped of that, that there are things that are being put into place that are wanting to equalize things. um, That's the thought. So so in 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 essence, men are feeling emasculated, right? Um, And they're not feeling like they are being heard. And they are feeling like to a point that they are being pushed aside um, for for purposes of advancement of females, which in a way, um, in some instances, then leads to the violence that women are experiencing. Um, Because and especially from our culture, um, you know, all of a sudden this loudness about, you know, I am I am she, hear me roar type of thing um, is not something that you were allowed to do. And it's not something that you were supposed to do. Right. So now you've got you, you've got government saying that this thing has to happen. You've got society saying that this thing has to happen, um, you know, and and you get into instances where it's it's on some, well, that can happen wherever you are, but it's not going to happen within the confines of my home because uh, in my home, I am still a man. And in my home, you need, you still need to treat me as the head of this household. You still need to treat me as the man, right? Um so, so there's that then where women are having to kind of play this dual role where at work or outside uh, in society, you are seen as it's okay, you're able to climb the corporate ladder. If you've got dreams and if you've got whatever, you're going to be supported and you're going to be whatever. But then when you come home, um, you have to change the narrative in your head um, so that you are behaving the way that you are expected to behave, especially from a cultural perspective, because culturally that hasn't changed. It hasn't. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting as well to consider the overlap between the ethnic issue there. I mean, I, I know actually these terms don't always translate very well, as we'll discover uh, with one of my other guests on this podcast. The uh, we call it the racial issue in yeah. South Africa. Um, there's been a lot of change in the past 30, 40 years. A lot of assumptions about the way society should be organised have been yeah. upended or challenged. So do you think there is something, there's some kind of, uh, there's an intersection between these issues? Mm, 100%. And, and and remember that in South Africa, it, it's it, we're not the ethnic minority. In South Africa, we're the majority, right? Um, 
but the 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 result is actually telling because what the result says to you is that we are still at a point where even my verbalizing it is a problem right so my my um my my being comfortable enough to actually tell the truth and say actually yes this is an issue um you know is still a problem because because then there's that thing of well who's going to see it um you know who's going to see it who's going to hear it who's going to um you know be privy to what i'm saying here you know am i seen as this upstart black chick um who um you know is just running around and going rah rah and completely going against the grain of um of who I am meant to be. So there's definitely that, you know, I mean, the 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 results, the results should be saying, this is the majority, right? And the majority is saying this, but we are still at a level where we are not comfortable enough to be completely and utterly honest about it. Um, and say, actually, this is the this is what the case is. And and the reaction to it is what people are afraid of, right? So people would rather be quiet or people would rather toe the line because you've been taught to, um, you know, you've been conditioned to, right? And so there's only there's only a few that will actually speak up on it. But thank you very much for your time, Boos, and for your insights. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I'll do it again. Thank you for listening to the People Planet Prosperity Podcast. For more detail on the issues we've covered today and others, check out the Ipsos Equalities Index, which can be found on our website. Or grab a copy of Alistair's book, Multiracism, and keep an eye out for more analysis from us later this year. Last but not least, don't forget to subscribe to the Ipsos Views channel wherever you get your podcasts.